0: Assalamualaikum and hello, on New Wave Global, I am Faria. According to the Air Quality Life Index developed by the University of Chicago, 98.3% of Pakistanis breathe air that is below the country's own national air quality standard. The same study says that air pollution shortens people's lives by almost 7 years in Pakistan's most polluted regions Of Punjab and other provinces. In November last year, the air quality index in Lahore peaked at an alarming level of 409, prompting the Punjab government to mandate the closure of businesses and educational institutions while telling people to stay at home, to stay safe. Now, businesses and traders might somehow afford this literally catch some fresh air indoor break. But for a majority of Pakistanis, especially the daily wagers, hawkers, traffic wardens, security officials, street sweepers uh, and sanitation workers, uh, already crippled by backbreaking inflation amid a food insecure Pakistan, staying at home would mean going without the next meal and perhaps many subsequent meals. Now, those belonging to low-income groups are hardest hit by the effects of smog as their economic lives entail being out and about every single day to make ends meet. For them, the only choice is between work or starvation as toxic smog further exacerbates our city's divide between poverty and privilege. I'm grateful to Asad Ajaaz Bhatt for joining me. Asad is a very familiar face on New Wave Global and Neodar TV. He hosts uh, shows on political economy. Asad uh, is a development economist. Uh, He has provided energy consultancy and advisory services to many uh, multilateral and bilateral donors, including the UN and USAID. In 2018, Asad uh, joined the civil service of Pakistan and uh, uh, he is currently working for the federal government. Uh, Asad, uh, smog is being dubbed the fifth season of Pakistan, especially in Lahore and its surroundings. We witness an annual smog fest. Uh, Experts say that those suffering the worst from air pollution are not only those least responsible uh, for it but also the ones who are least able to cope with it now in what ways uh, do you think smog impacts the economic lives of the poor especially the labor class here in pakistan
1: uh, thank you freyal for having me um... Yeah, this is a very uh, first of all. Thank you for selecting this topic. I think it's a very pertinent issue in Pakistan, and uh, one needs to discuss this. Uh, but before I uh, uh, come to your question, just a quick comment about the policy conundrum that exists in this sector, and you know why um, the government hasn't really uh, taken the issue head on, and how it's not able to sort of make the kind of progress that we estimate that the government would make. Uh, because if I correctly understand, you know, this uh, annual smog that takes place between the months of October and November, uh, some parts of December. And now it's sort of this, I I suppose I do not have data to back this, but this period is now expanding. It's elongating now. It's a much longer period than what it used to be in the past. I think Uh, if I correctly recall, you know, I mean, there was that phenomenon of fog in Pakistan in the past but in the years 2009-2010 that started to be replaced by something called smog uh, which is is not the normal fog that takes place during winter this is uh, outright air pollution and uh, and and for the past 10-12 years you know one thought that the government uh, especially the environment protection departments in the provinces would be able to sort of devise policies that would get rid of this. but one uh, policy that uh, you know sort of one mitigation policy in this sector is to uh, is to, like you said, uh, close industries in specific months of the year. but you know the big question is, does that really matter and what sort of mitigation impacts would that create? First of all, Pakistan does not have a GHE inventory. So we don't know what industry and what sector emits what. Uh, we have like a total emissions count where we say that Pakistan, you know, emits, I'm talking about carbon emissions here. Yeah. Pakistan emits 0.9% of the global carbon emissions, but we do not know what emissions come from the industrial sector, what uh, emissions come from the break in. Uh, sector, for instance. What part, part of the emissions come from the agriculture sector? And uh, uh, all of these you know, estimates are just pure estimates. There's no uh, research study done on what sector contributes what. I was part of a project uh, that looked at uh, the industrial decarbonization potential of these sectors. But even even those projects are done on very weak premises because we're just essentially uh basing that information on uh, on uh, on on speculative uh, sort of uh, or predictive kind of models in which we think that you know uh, a certain activity or a certain exercise done in the environment sector would have a certain uh, uh mitigation potential but we don't know exactly what that mitigation potential is so uh, a major cause of the smog that's taking place uh, essentially is uh the residue burning in the wheat sector, not just in the agriculture sector, but in the wheat sector, because the essential or the big question to ask is why does this only happen during these specific months? And the big uh, answer is and I think that uh, is like a rational response because essentially industries are working Throughout the year. So, is there rationale in closing industries? Is there value in closing industries? Of course, uh, I mean, there's a clear answer to this question, but is there uh, a strong rationale in sort of regulating the residue, crop residue burning activity, especially when it comes to uh, sowing of uh, wheat during the season? Because wheat is a rubby crop and you would know that it's sowing uh, takes place in the months uh, between October and December. I think in Punjab, it takes place like a couple of weeks later, but uh, but yeah, so, so, because Pakistan wheat is a large uh, cash crop in Pakistan, it's a big exporting commodity and of course there is very little leeway that the government has in terms of regulating the wheat sector because given that, you know, this environment problem, and like you said, has great economic impacts, but the economic impacts on the other side are even perhaps greater, you know, you don't regulate uh, these activities that contribute to smog, like uh, crop residue burning, Uh, there is an economic cost, uh, uh, of course, that, uh, and I'm coming to your question now that lessens Essentially, productivity in the agriculture sector. If you close industries, uh, you pointed towards that uh, in your intro. Uh, if you close industries, of course, there's a very large opportunity cost associated with what the industries produce, and some of these industries, like uh, textile, which are which are uh, uh, very large uh, uh, contributors to Pakistan's uh, meager exports. I mean cannot be closed down. So there's a massive opportunity cost uh, associated with closure of industries, especially in countries like Pakistan. Uh, yes, there is a cost associated uh, with regards to agricultural the productivity. There's a cost uh, associated with the uh, closure of industries. Uh, but is there, you know, the big policy question is, is that is that cost strong enough for the government to not do anything about it? Is that- mm-hmm. Uh, been the status quo for the past ten years. Should the government do something about it? If the government does it. Uh, is like uh, you know, are are radical steps like closure of industries or or preventing uh, wheat crop residue burning uh, uh, are 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 the right steps forward? I mean, there's no policy consensus on that, but clearly, given the health impacts, which in my opinion outweigh all of the other, you know. Pros and cons of uh, government regulations in the in, in, in the environment sector uh, clearly outweigh other concerns. I think uh, I think uh, that becomes the biggest of concern. Yes.
0: So as like you <clears throat> pointed out, uh, rightly pointed out, <clears throat> we we do know that smog is more like an annual phenomenon, but air pollution is a year-round reality, and yeah. we don't sort of uh, tend to see it once the smog season departs. Now the burning of crop residue that you just referred to, uh, to prepare for the planting season, it worsens air pollution in winters, but fuel and energy uh, sectors are among the primary polluters around the year. Now I have uh, this, these are a few statistics from a food and agriculture organization's source appropriation study that singles out power producers industry and the transport sector as the biggest culprits. The study says that vehicular emissions, they contribute to almost 43 percent of the air pollution, followed by industrial emissions at 25 percent and agricultural emissions at 20 percent and burning of fossil fuels and coal to generate power at 12 percent but all we hear the government talk about is blame uh, the Indian farmers for stubble burning or uh, on our side of the border, we have our own farmers doing that as well. Is the government aware of, I mean, I'm sure they are aware, but do they recognize the, these real issues as well, that these are the ones that need to be actually taken care of?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, thank you. Uh, that's a wonderful question. I mean, uh um, you have asked me three different things and I'll address each one of them I, separately. I'm sorry the about first that. is <laughs> no, no worries. The first is uh, the first is the Indian issue. Of course, uh, I mean there's a very strong political economy associated with this, but uh, uh, but of course climate is also a shared commodity and uh, I was, was talking to uh, Adil Najam about this uh, on the same platform a few months ago and he said that there needs to be like a different lens of tackling the climate issue and uh, and that lens can certainly not be uh, a nationalistic uh, a country level analysis cannot sort of support the uh, the kind of climate consensus that needs to be built even though he did agree with the fact that there is a strong policy element involved in this which is where uh, country leaderships have a strong role to play. But in either case, I mean, uh, I do agree with the fact that this cannot be dealt at the level of cities or at the level of countries. So jurisdictional uh, sort of uh, divisions of the issue, uh, of the climate issue, are uh, uh, are, are not a very sort of great lens of uh, looking at the problem. But in either case, I mean, uh, uh, Delhi is, uh, you know, the closest big large city in India, it's more congested than Lahore and other parts of, uh, some other parts of Pakistan's uh, Punjab, which sort of gives rise to these kinds of uh, speculations that it might be coming from India. But this is not based on any uh, solid research. I mean, climate definitely is a shared commodity, but uh, I would like to believe uh, uh, i would like to believe in this uh, argument if this is uh, based on uh, based on credible research uh, but i think the other two uh, issues that you raised uh, are more pertinent than this one is the issue about vehicular uh, emissions oh. of course i mean we we tend to sort of uh, uh, ignore uh, the data i mean i Totally agree with the numbers that you've presented. When killer emissions might be a very large contributor in Pakistan's overall emissions mix, but uh, but generally, if you look at uh, you know the per capita vehicles that an average Pakistan like Pakistan has, or the number of vehicles that an average Pakistani has, I think the number is very very small. It's like thirty vehicles or thirty five vehicles per one thousand people in Pakistan. And I think uh, that the same number is as high as something like eight hundred or nine hundred in the US. And uh,
0: uh, sorry, numbers. sorry to cut you short, Asad. But what about uh, uh, motorbikes and auto rickshaws? Uh, they yeah, yeah. I mean, use very substandard I mean, fuel, and also I think their emissions uh, systems yeah. are faulty. Uh, that pro- yeah, I mean, adds a very high percentage. Uh, to
1: the yeah. pollution. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even with those numbers, we're not looking at we're not looking at per capita transport higher. You know, you could sort of infer that from per capita oil or fuel usage as well, which the motor rickshaw or even the motorbikes, bikes, the cars, all three of them would be. Used. So even with those per capita consumption of fuel numbers, we're much. Uh, beneath the West, I think uh, uh, vehicular emissions are a major contributor, and even industrial emissions are a major contributor. But let's let's be honest about this. Comparing to countries in the West here that do not have a smog problem and do not have such, uh, I mean, countries in the West do have have an air pollution problem. But uh, looking at data, I mean. I don't think that vehicular emissions or industrial emissions is a big concern. I'd, I'd uh, relay a story to you, I mean, at the Paris Agreement, which is one of the biggest agreements that have taken uh, place in the in the climate space so far, I mean, one of the bigger contentions of India's Prime Minister Modi, who was newly elected at the time uh, he was first elected in 2014 and then went to Paris. And he said that, you know, this it's very easy for post-industrialized nations to now tell us that, you know, stop industrializing because climate is a shared commodity and you're polluting the world and you're causing this he- these health hazards for everyone else as well. So, to stop industrializing at the pace at which you're industrializing. I mean, and basically, Modi meant that, you know, it's very easy for countries like the U.S. who are uh, the champions of the global climate agenda to tell to yeah. sort of... Lecture us China to stop industrializing at this point because this is exactly what they did uh, back in the 50s, in the 60s, or even perhaps before that. So, I think that, that argument had a basis, and I mean, it's very difficult for countries like Pakistan that are in the pre industrial phase to basically stop industrializing at this point because the economic costs, purely economic costs, I'm just uh, not discussing health here, the economic costs of, uh, of Not industrializing are much much greater than the economic costs that we would associate with air pollution or smog. Not just not discussing health because it's it's very very difficult to put a value a dollar value on health. But essentially the the argument that I'm making is that we would have to find other ways. Of course, air pollution is a problem. Smog is a big problem. Uh, But we would have other find other ways which are less radical than closing industries to sort of. uh, Solve the small problem. But uh, one thing, uh, Farrell, which is very, very important, because when you raise the issue of uh, industrial emissions, I think something that needs to be uh, looked into is the contracts that the government signed under the China Park Economic Corridor. I, I mean, at that time, uh, like I said, the uh, government's big priority was to industrialize, was to increase exports, was also, of course, uh, something that had very large scale economic impacts. Was uh, Uh, especially in terms of uh, industrial production and industrial productivity, was uh, the problem of uh, load shedding in Pakistan. So back in the day when Pakistan in 2014-15 was negotiating the China Park Economic Corridor, uh, uh, the government did not pay attention to the fact that most of the power plants that it would be importing from Chinese companies were all uh, coal-based power plants. So... Uh, which are a major cause of this smog, and uh, like I said, you know, this period has continued to elongate after that time because some of these plants uh, started functioning uh, as uh, as late as twenty eighteen, and uh, and since then the problem has only exacerbated. Yeah. And uh, of course, the government did not have, especially the federal government did not have a climate focus at the time. The Ministry of Climate Change was not active, and of course, Pakistan doesn't have. You know, it's like a beggars cannot be choosers situation. Did not have a lot of uh, sway over, uh, you know, uh, the CPEC policy or when it came to government's dealings with China, which uh, essentially meant that uh, we were just, uh, you know, these power plants were just handed down to Pakistan and we had to operate them the way they were. And uh, essentially, I think that is also one of the major causes. But like I said, one one would have to go back to. A uh, wheat crop residue uh, and, uh, and 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 brickets essentially. If one has to uh, look into this, because brickets are very very important. Just oh, sorry for a very long answer, but brickets are very very important because uh, one thing that people might not know about brickets, uh, which is a big phenomena in certain parts of Punjab and a major contributor to carbon emissions and air pollution and so on and so forth, and also considered one of the major causes of smog is that brick the brickens uh, cannot operate in the rainy season mm. so it's also not a not a summer phenomena where it rains more uh, frequently uh, therefore it becomes uh, their production activity even though they produce round the year but their production activity uh, heightens uh, essentially uh, during uh, uh, these months of uh, september october november and that basically uh, sort of couples with the uh, the wheat. Uh, crop residue burning during these months, which becomes like a major cause of smog. And essentially then it becomes, like I said, it becomes like a policy problem, a policy conundrum for the government to decide whether they would like to close these activities because essentially there's a huge uh, opportunity cost associated with closure or even perhaps uh, mitigation activities have uh, economic costs uh,
0: So do do we have uh, any figures on the estimated economic burden of air pollution in Pakistan? Uh, The global economic costs of air pollution are estimated to run into trillions uh, in the near future as per the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It is estimated that it is going to be something like 25 trillion dollars uh, uh, in terms of economic costs. Do we have any figures on Pakistan in that context?
1: Well, nothing, uh, nothing that I know of. I mean, there would be some estimations done, I I, I suppose so, because there's increasing interest in the area. Uh, in uh, There's a lot of uh, climate research being carried on. I know that Pakistan is building, a, a, with the support of World Bank, we're doing a few projects in which we're building the GHG inventory now. So there's some... Uh, You know, uh, uh, there's some measurement uh, being done in this sector. So there's some studies that are uh, uh, doing that kind of analysis. Uh, But uh, I can't point, I mean, there's nothing which has gained coinage or there's nothing that has uh, become sort of known or mainstream to the level that people would generally come to know about it. Uh, Nothing that the government uh, has uh, or the Environment Protection Departments or Ministry of Climate Change have produced.
0: So uh, I, came, uh, yeah. uh, I came across this. Sure, sure, sure. sure. So was, Please go World ahead. World Bank report that estimates that the collapse of select ecosystem services could result in an annual decline in global GDP by 2030. Yeah. And the report highlights mm. that uh, the sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia would suffer the most. Um, in terms of relative contraction of real GDP, which is going to Mm -hmm. be uh, around 9.7% annually annually due to the collapse of the ecosystem services by 2030, uh, which should perhaps be a cause uh, for concern here in Pakistan. Uh, Now, one of the uh, connections between the economy and air pollution are higher costs of energy. Uh, The buildup of pollution can cause uh, power uh, production and distribution equipment to fail and require frequent repairs or replacement, leading to an increase in energy crisis. Now, for a country like Pakistan, which is already struggling with very high energy costs, and we are not very efficient in terms of our power distribution system, uh, which leads to uh, frequent power losses. are we taking into account how air pollution is aggravating this power crisis? Um, because uh, wh- one thing which is happening very frequently in Lahore these days is that we are having very frequent power outages, uh, which is usually a yeah. summer phenomena. Uh, so I really don't know if smog has a role to play there. I mean, you're the expert. Maybe you can comment on that.
1: Uh, I mean, uh- uh, as far as you know, uh, the infrastructure requiring uh, more frequent repairs and maintenance—I mean, that is that is linked uh, to air pollution and smog. Yes, but uh, uh, but I think uh, the current problem in Pakistan uh, has its roots in uh, public finance more than you know air pollution and energy because. Uh, you know, the the circular debt is piling up, and government has some payments to make. But essentially, uh, there could be like small impacts which are lesser known and not as visible. But uh, but but you raise a very valid point. I mean, even as somebody working in the sector, we've even though most of us know that you know that uh, that. Uh, uh, that there are some sort of, uh, infrastructure repair and maintenance issues that are linked to air pollution and so on but despite many people knowing this i mean this has never been the focus of the government or even perhaps focus of uh, development sector partners in Istanbul. Uh and we we're not a nation that could fix problems before they occur. uh i mean we would wait Absolutely. for the problem to exacerbate before we uh, start addressing it so Essentially, no. Uh, there's, there's not been any focus on this uh, because the government is tackling a much bigger issue, which is to end the smog in the first place
0: yeah.
1: and uh, which is to sort of uh, negotiate uh, with the industry. If you uh, if you recall when load shedding was like a big phenomenon, I mean, uh, the government wanted to close factories, industries, shops, markets, retail outlets, etc., uh, 9 pm or 10 pm in Punjab, and it faced a lot of difficulty doing that because, you know, that is where the elite capture argument also comes in. Because these, uh, a lot of independent uh, power plants, these big industries are owned by Pakistan's elite who also have like a very strong uh, uh, domination over Pakistan's politics and parliamentary mm-hmm. process. So, therefore, it becomes very difficult to sort of uh, do these things right away. But like I like like I said, you know, uh, this is a classic uh, policy conundrum because there are costs on both sides. I mean, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, the example that you just mentioned, if you uh, regulate these coal, coal power plants, I mean, you want to end smog and air pollution, but ending smog and air pollution means that you have to there there is a very strong economic cost associated with replacing these power plants. An economy like Pakistan does not afford that. Uh, But but should you not do anything about it? If you you don't do anything about it, there would be a much larger cost like you mentioned associated with the repairs and maintenance that will be required to these power plants. Similarly, in the industrial sector, if you don't do anything about it, essentially, uh, that means... uh, uh, that means that there would be the economic costs associated with uh, with smog and air pollution that we've discussed. But if you do something about it, that means lesser exports, that means uh, lesser industrial production. And like you mentioned yourself, that would be uh, a great loss to the gross domestic product, not just Pakistan, but if it is done at a global level, uh, there'd be massive losses to the GDP. And some of these things were discussed uh, you know this uh, classic policy problem was uh, discussed during the Paris Agreement, which is why uh, this essentially this discussion took place, which is why some of these estimations of the loss to the global GDP were also carried out. So, so I think uh, there is like a very sort of thin line between uh, doing or not doing something in this sector, because there are costs, massive costs associated with government regulations on both sides, and uh, and and therefore. Uh, That is also one major cause of the inactivity that you see, the government inactivity in this sector, because essentially when the government is kind of torn and even experts are torn between uh, whether the government should close industries or partially close industries or whether the government should do anything about negotiations that it does with the Chinese in the future regarding coal-fired power plants, I mean, there is uh, a lot of uh, political expedience to not do anything about it. A lot of political convenience associated with not doing anything about it. Because when essentially the experts are torn and there are people on both sides, it's easy for the government to take a step back and say, okay, then we're not doing anything. But It doesn't say that explicitly, but uh, that has been the status quo and that's how uh, matters are at this point. But yeah, but I I mean, uh, that... uh, repair and maintenance requirements that would come uh, sort of in the future is like a valid concern but uh, there's no focus on that uh, within the ministries of climate change or provincial mm. environment protection department.
0: Yeah but I was going through this uh, report that the PTI government had set a target for Pakistan to generate 30% of its energy needs via renew- renewable sources by 2030. Yeah. Um, And uh, last year, the National Electric Power uh, Regulatory Authority noted that due to fossil fuels, price uh, volatility and decreasing cost of renewables, uh, viable options for meeting the country's energy needs uh, through more sustainable sources uh, was possible. Uh, Do you think uh, we can achieve uh, such a target as it was set by the PTI government if subsequent governments are consistent in taking this up and if there are no stock policy shifts which I know is not something that comes very easy uh, here but uh, uh, do you think it's possible to move ahead in that direction to move towards renewables
1: uh, it's definitely possible but what would be the sources of you know I mean this uh, this uh, figure I think comes- yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I understand. I, I mean, I understand what renewable would constitute. But uh, when I say source, I'm essentially thinking about how the current, you know, non-renewable sources would be converted. And uh, because, like I said, and I've been uh, mentioning this time and again during this interview, that uh, there are massive costs associated with, uh, you know, these uh, conversions and replacements of uh, non-renewable sources to renewables. So for instance, if I'm an independent power producer, the government invited me to do a bid. Let's just get into the public finance matters. Uh, I, The government said that for the next 15 years or for the next 10 years, if I'm an investor, I set up an IPP. The government needs energy. I set up an IPP. The government says that we'd, buy, we'd be buying very like, We'd be buying one megawatt from your IPP for the next 10-15 years at a so-and-so cost. I have set the set set that plant up for the next 15 years. I've set that plant up, and lot, a and lot of these contracts are long-term contracts because otherwise it's not the ROI, the return on investment is not feasible for any private investment investor in the energy sector. So the, and I, I don't know if you saw that, but uh, when the uh, when the when the Sharif governments uh, sworn in in April of two thousand and twenty two, they basically uh, invited a lot of bids for IPPs to set up, but there was no mention of green energy or renewable energy, uh, which is indicative of the fact that you know even contracts that the government is signing at this point are not based on uh, the condition of uh, the IPP sort of setting up a green power plant, Uh, uh, but but like I said, I mean, it's not possible for the government at this point to renegotiate, like I said, Chinese projects, a lot of them uh, are like uh, hardwired into the system. They are uh, hardened contracts that the government has already signed for the long term and it would be very difficult for the government to either divest from those projects or even perhaps uh, the Chinese are really uh, sort of… Uh, adamant about, uh, you know, changing uh, the conditionalities within these contracts. So it's very difficult for the government to uh, renegotiate their contracts with IPPs or the Chinese. So I don't think that uh, even though this number that you mentioned comes from uh, the climate change policy, that we would have 30% renewable sources until 2030, but 2030 is just six years away at the time when the policy was made, 2030 was... Eight or eight or nine years away. I think it came out in 2021, if I'm not wrong. So I mean, eight or nine years was a very very small time sort of horizon to uh, make such big structural changes in the in the sector. And looking at what Pakistan has achieved in the last nine years, or perhaps mm-hmm. in the last uh, 20 years, when this this became like a global phenomenon. I don't see.
0: Uh,
1: I no. don't expect big changes to be made in the next 10 years yes
0: but what we are doing at the moment the government policies uh, which is aimed at combating uh, are more, are usually made in in haste and they seem more like knee jerk reactions rather than a long term policy uh, for example uh, the uh, enabling when they wanted to enable the artificial rain or even closing markets or schools three days a week, that is not going to help uh, the smog issue or the air pollution issue in the long run. We do understand that. Uh, The the fuel uh, that Pakistan uses falls under the Euro 2 category of the European Union standards, which is a significantly lower quality fuel compared to what has been recommended as the Euro 6 category. Uh, Now, uh, under the brownfield refinery policy 2023, it necessitated uh, Pakistan to facilitate the existing refineries uh, to move towards producing Euro 5 compliant fuels. Uh, Refineries are required uh, under this uh, policy to uh, start producing uh, quality uh, fuel and even uh, at the provincial level, the government has announced the imposition of embargoes on uh, those who are supplying uh, Euro two fuel. Uh, why has there not been much progress in this uh, regard as well?
1: Well, I'm not sure uh, what the status is right now. I'm. I know that the government uh, came up with this regulation, but I do not know, you know, whether or to what scale has the government been able to crack down on on. Uh, those not complying with its regulations. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, when you talk about such things, there's like a pervasive capacity problem, regardless of what sector we're discussing. And uh, even though uh, regulators within the energy sector, uh, because uh, the government has a stronger monopoly in this sector and a stronger monopoly over uh, the production of fuel, essentially, because the government has the only... Largest finally in the country uh, when it comes to uh, petrol and uh, diesel and those kinds of fuels. Uh, So essentially, uh, given the monopoly status of the government, the government has you know the regulatory bodies in this sector. For instance, Ogra are much stronger regulatory bodies than say regulatory bodies in the education sector. For instance, uh, where the government does not have a very strong monopoly. So uh, I, I. I'm I, I'm not sure what the what the I'm sorry I'm not sure what the uh, the crackdown status is or how effectively has the government implemented these regulations. Uh, I might need to look into that. But uh, essentially, if if you say that not much progress has taken place, I I can only point to you know capacity of the regulatory institutions and you know uh, essentially uh, what amount of power do they have over the private sector is I think. Uh, a critical concern. But I think uh, even within such sectors where the government has a strong monopoly and regulatory bodies are strong, I mean, some in some uh, policy areas, uh, you know, regulators do not have uh, a strong focus. It's not a priority. And maybe perhaps uh, this is not a priority of uh, the regulator in the fuel sector at the moment. It would become one in the future. You know, for instance, uh, this is the only sector, the fuel sector in Pakistan, if the regulator, and even in a country like Pakistan, where, you know, uh, there's a very strong instance of shirking, uh, there is there is uh, outright compliance that the private sector shows with the government. You look at, look at, you know, uh, price changes, sometimes uh, the private companies are not agreeing to the price change, but at the moment, Ogra notifies a price change, even if it's like a radical price change. Within a few seconds, all uh, retail outlets in the country, all, all pumps in the country, all petrol stations in the country, update to the new price without even you know, the Ogra regulators uh, raiding their uh, uh, stations or raiding their sites. And nobody looks into this. This is like a big phenomena in a country like Pakistan. We're shirking of the private sector with government regulations, private sector not complying with the government is a a regular form, that's a norm. But within this sector, it has never become a norm because regulations are very, very strong. And this is indicative of the fact that if a powerful regulatory body like OGRA might want to do something, if they do want to sort of implement a certain change,
0: uh, so in uh, in the big cities, uh, Asad, it's uh, the poorest who live in cramped, informal settlements, often near rubbish dumps or other sources of pollution. Uh, and they feel the full impact of air pollution. Sometimes there are huge smoldering dump sites right next to schools and clinics and shops. And they have this daily exposure to toxic fumes from the dump. There's also indoor air pollution for these people due to the burning of wood and charcoal and kerosene inside uh, uh, these poorly ventilated homes for cooking and heating. Uh, Now, uh, these people, they cannot afford uh, cleaner fuels or alternative technologies. They have fewer resources to uh, relocate. Uh, There are no green spaces all of which can cause uh, psychosocial distress and uh, chronic stress. So can we say that mental health, uh, in addition to, of course, physical health, which we know is certainly affected uh, by uh, air pollution and smog, can we say that mental health uh, can also be uh, somewhat affected uh, by constant exposure to air pollution? There have been some studies, which I was going through, uh, that there is there is evidence of diminished individual cognitive capabilities uh, if you are constantly exposed to air pollution. So, what is your take on that?
1: I mean, uh, I've not looked at uh, uh, studies that uh, uh, talk about mental health issues, but I'm, I mean, uh, thinking about it uh, as an individual, I think. Uh, uh, and, you know, in my discussions with people, people are generally affected both ways. And I think I don't know what how important the issue of proximity is because essentially uh, people living close to these, uh, you know, these dumping sites that you mentioned or people perhaps living uh, uh, close to where uh, the agriculture waste is being burned are also affected regardless of their uh, economic status. I mean, the rich are also affected alike because uh, you know, they are breathing the same air, but they have stronger firewalls erected. You know, That's where the difference comes. The poor person does not uh, afford good health care. Uh, uh, their health, I think, the bigger concern is not even them affording uh, great health care, even though that's a big issue I think an even bigger issue is that their health is not being monitored and therefore not recorded. If you look at uh, various studies about health uh, and you want to zoom in uh, on uh, Pakistan's uh, bottom 40% or bottom 20%, you would not get credible statistics. You know, I was doing this study in the district of uh, Shekhupura in the health sector and uh, there were little health statistics that were disaggregated by economic status. essentially. Uh, essentially, because there was no focus on the poor, but also perhaps because a lot of times uh, these small uh, uh, clinics uh, or these uh, quacks that the, the poor person affords, mm-hmm. you know, uh, essentially they have no databases, they're not asking them to fill any registration forms, uh, they do not have the resources to go to labs and conduct tests which uh, provide us certain baselines about health. And because essentially, there is, there is no baselining in the health sector. There is no monitoring in the health sector. You don't know if a certain person before the is, was, was sort of facing a certain health issue in the months of say, September or October, or October. Did that exacerbate in the months of January or, or February when the person faced uh, smog or when the person moved into a locality? Uh, in a slum which was a dump which had a dumping site nearby. you don't know whether health improved or did not after a certain period of time. I mean, these kind of studies need to be uh, need to be carried out. but since we do not have uh, specific uh, data, we're just going by logic. And I think uh, uh, the logical way of uh, you know looking at this is that of course essentially there are, uh, there could be both mental and uh, physical health issues associated with mobs. Physical health issues are 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 even perhaps bigger. I mean, you talk about mental health issues, which are uh, less visible, but or could be greater, but less less visible. But physical health issues are uh, far greater in terms of being more visible, essentially, yes. and have been uh, have been the subject of government policy as well, which is essentially. Uh, uh, there are great skin issues that are caused. Uh, I've heard a skin doctor say, and I mean, it's very uh, sadistic of him to say that, but I've heard doctors say that, you know, like there is, uh, like uh, uh, the uh, wedding season is very lucrative for the wedding hall industry. Uh, you know, this smog season is very lucrative for uh, skin specialists, doctors in Lahore and in Punjab. That is that is when they uh, make money. So they 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 think that those three months of the year is is seasoned for their business. Uh, uh, which, as sad as that is, it is it is very true. And I think uh, the physical health issues are, are more visible. And you know, one uh, uh, they become one great contributor to uh, people leaving the country as well. So I mean, uh, while you're focusing on the poor, I mean. Uh, there's this uh, uh, capable Pakistani class people who went to universities are educated are professionals uh, who are leaving the country just because there is a big health hazard uh during the three months I I, I recall a doctor telling me a qualified doctor telling me that you know the environment is polluted in Pakistan and it's become so bad in Pakistan that you know, come the months of uh, September and October, you start taking anti-allergies, you know, you Mm -hmm. go to pharmaceutical places and you talk about certain drug names, which are anti-allergies, you would see that their sales far outweigh sales of any other medicine. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, other than Paracetamol, I I mean, I think uh, anti-allergies in Pakistan would be the second highest uh, Uh, selling uh, uh, medication, especially during these months when people are catching these cold and flu type issues as well. So you talk to doctors and they say, you know, ever since smog became a phenomenon, you start taking anti allergies even before you are uh, feeling sick during the months of September and October. So that's how bad the situation is. And people are are leaving the country. I mean, uh, health is such a big issue. even much bigger than employment. That in the past there was no, there was little job creation. The economy is failing, but people who are patriotic Pakistanis still wanted to hang on. But now uh, they're just leaving the country because they are falling sick. Their children are falling sick. Uh, almost half the year uh, we have this phenomena of smog. The other times of the year, like you mentioned, the uh, air Ail quality is true. still bad. Yes. You cannot breathe. You have skin issues. People are just leaving the country. I mean, uh, it's it's, and that's I think one big economic cost associated with it.
0: It is. It is. It 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 causes so many physical ailments. There's coughing. There's sneezing. Uh, respiratory yeah. ailments, asthma. People with asthma get more affected. Bronchitis and cancer. In very extreme cases, uh, it can cause lung cancer in chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases and, you know, uh, very uh, such diseases that, uh, that can really uh, uh, affect, it, it's a, they're, they're a threat to, to, to your life, not just about inconvenience, but about life-threatening diseases. Uh, because these air uh, pollutants, they impair the blood vessel function in uh, a lot of cases. Uh, Economic benefits uh, which are associated with air pollution mitigation uh, certainly outweigh its costs uh, by a great factor. Its impacts on the workforce and productivity are immense. Considering that Pakistan's economy is already struggling to stabilize for quite some time and faces innumerable challenges, pollution-induced dampness, are the last thing that we need. Asad, I thank you very much for your professional input and your time. Thank you for watching. Allah Hafiz and goodbye.